0: Hey good morning y'all, Hey, what a great day it is, I'm so thankful that you are here and if you're watching online that you are watching online with us and um, lots of places that you could be, the Lord I think has us all here together today Uh, for a reason, I think he's got a uh, a special message, I think it's a a powerful place in scripture that we're going to be in today. Acts chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be starting in Acts chapter 9, but I want to jump back to the beginning of Acts in chapter 1, because it is really, and I said this, I don't know, several months ago when we started in Acts, that it is the the pivotal verse in Scripture, the pivotal verse in the New Testament, and that is verse 8 of chapter 1. Let me read that to you. But but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and in Judea and in in Samaria and to the ends of the earth or to the end of the earth Jerusalem Judea Samaria and then out to the end of the earth and those are Jesus words though Luke wrote them because Luke wrote Acts but those are Jesus's words and those words in 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 chapter one they really serve as an outline for the book of Acts chapters one uh, through seven are are kind of the 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 spread of the gospel inside of of Jerusalem and then in chapter 8 it shows believers being persecuted and under threat even of persecution Uh, scattering. It's the name of the series that we're in. We see the believers scattering and and spreading the gospel into Judea and in Samaria and then chapter 9 records what I believe to be one of the most monumental events in the history of the church, and that is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who's later known as Paul, so you're going to have to give me some grace today because I'm probably, I know myself well enough, I'm going to say Saul and Paul and Paul and Saul, and you're just going to have to know it's the same dude that I'm talking about. There's nothing theological about whether I say Paul or Saul. It's the same guy that that we're talking about. So we see Saul, who would end up being God's uh, God's guy for the Gentiles, God's God's apostle to the Gentiles, and again, just to remind you, a Gentile is somebody that was not Jewish. A Gentile is somebody who was was not born into uh, into Judaism. So Saul is going to be God's spokesman to the Gentiles, and he would, if we're looking at this little outline in Acts one he would lead the church uh, in in the spread of Christianity to. To the end of the earth, that part of verse 8, to the end of the earth. So really, Paul, um, probably more than any other human, is super, super, super significant from chapter 10 of Acts all the way really to the end of the book. And nobody is better suited to the task that God has given Paul. Nobody better suited than him. Philippians says that he was a real Jew if there ever was one. He was a native of Tarsus. And he was thoroughly acquainted with the Greek culture. That's called Hellenism. He was thoroughly acquainted with the Greek culture. He was a citizen of Rome. He was a Jew, but he was also a citizen of Rome. And by being a citizen of Rome, he was afforded certain rights that were only given to people who are citizens of Rome. And those rights would serve him well, really, as he goes to, to, to share the gospel, as he goes on his missionary journeys. He was also trained in a trade so he could kind of take care of himself uh, resource wise. He was a tent maker uh, so as he traveled and ministered he was able to kind of provide for himself but before Jesus could use him for, for all of this stuff, before uh, the Lord could use him uh, as the spokesman for the gen, uh, to the Gentiles before the Lord could use him as his real chief missionary He had to transform him, and the truth is Paul really probably had absolutely no idea what laid ahead for him on this road to Damascus. That's where we're going to be today in Acts chapter 9. Probably just in the first four or five verses today, I don't think I'll get past that, and we had just seen Philip at the end of chapter 8. Richard brought a great message last week from the Lord about Philip, and it was at the end of chapter 8, and we saw Philip travel from I've got this figurative little map. I know you can't see it, but Jerusalem is right here, and we saw Philip travel kind of southwest uh, onto the kind of the coast of the Med, the coast of Israel, down to, at least he was on his way to Gaza. May not have gotten all the way to Gaza, but he was on his way to Gaza God providentially crosses Philip's path with this Ethiopian guy. And this Ethiopian guy was a member of the queen of Ethiopia's cabinet. So this this Ethiopian guy was a pretty important kind of fellow. And, and at the end of it all, Philip leads this guy to Christ. He baptizes this guy. And then Philip, how many of y'all did not, if you were here last week, how many of you did not realize, recognize, or remember that Philip was teleported from Gaza up north, like it was crazy. So we saw Philip go from Jerusalem <clears throat> down to Gaza. He crosses paths with this Ethiopian, and then he is teleported to a place called Azotus, about 15 miles north, straight up the coast, and then the Bible says that he kept on preaching the gospel up to Caesarea. So Jerusalem to Gaza to Azotus, really he went through Joppa and then up to Caesarea, which is about 40 miles away. And Acts 9 opens up with the word but. The ESV says but. The King James uses the word and. But the truth is the CJB, the complete Jewish Bible, really gets the word at the beginning of Acts 9, really gets the nuance of what, what Luke is writing better. It uses the word meanwhile. And it's like this, it's like all this stuff is going on on the west side over here on the coast of the Mediterranean. All this stuff is going on and Philip went through a stargate and went up to Azotus and all that stuff's happening. But meanwhile, the Bible kind of says, meanwhile, verse 1 of Acts 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked, (coughs) asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Why? So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound bring them chained, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem. So you got to remember now, the the first time that we really are introduced to Saul, and really it's the last time that we saw him, was in Acts 7 when Stephen is stoned to death, literally buried uh, up to his waist and pummeled with rocks until, until he died. Paul was so, and Paul was there, Paul was so zealous about his beliefs, so fervent, about his beliefs that he's the one that began a campaign to rid the entire world of these heretic followers of the way these heretic Jesus followers and from Stephen's death on Paul was the leader of this persecution movement he's testifying before King Agrippa in Acts 26 and we're, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this in a few months probably but he says this stuff over and over he's, so he's kind of giving his testimony Uh, in front of King Agrippa in Acts 26 and Paul says I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth and I did so in Jerusalem I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests but when they were put to death he says I cast my vote against them I was rah-rah put them to death kill them that was Paul He says in verse 11 of of Acts 26, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even into foreign cities. So Paul had a vote. He had a vote. That tells me that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the ruling council. It was made up of of Pharisees and Sadducees, and Paul was a member because you 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 wouldn't have a vote if you weren't a member. And so Paul, when he when he has a chance to vote to kill them, kill them is what Paul said. When they scattered, we saw that at the beginning of Acts 8, 20, 25,000 uh, Christ followers after Stephen is stoned, they scatter on up into Judea and, and Samaria, and Paul hunted them down. In verse 3 of Acts 8, it says that he was ravaging the church. That's the, word, the words that are used. He's going in houses. He's kicking doors down. He's dragging men and women out of their house. The bottom line is Paul was wreaking havoc on the church. In fact, that word in Acts 8.3 that says he's ravaging, it's the same word that is used of a wolf that is tearing to shreds his prey. That is what Paul was doing to the church. You know, don't, don't forget you had thousands of followers who had scattered and they weren't running into caves and hiding, y'all. They scattered and they were preaching the gospel, that they were telling everybody that they came across their Jesus story. And so it's weird to say it, but good stuff was was happening. Saul's persecution in Jerusalem results in the good news of Jesus spreading into Judea and Samaria. Do you know that God always does stuff with all the events of our lives, good, bad, ugly, indifferent. He's going to take all of the events of our lives and he's going to get accomplished what he needs to get accomplished. But meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the Bible says, Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the Lord's people. And he hears that there's this big group of followers up north in Damascus, which is about 150 miles northeast of Jerusalem and he's just got to get up there and squash it. This is not a game for Paul. It's not a game. Y'all, when you read the book of Acts, well, when you read all of Scripture, picture these things going on in your mind. This is not a joke for Paul. He really believes that they are heretics. He really believes that they're blasphemers. He really believes that they have defamed the very character of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is he is bought into that. He has no, there's no doubt in, in, in Saul's mind. He has this all encompassing, this all consuming passion to exterminate every single Christian that he could find. And so he gets, the Bible tells us he gets permits, he gets letters from the high priest to go hunt them down. It is twisted. This is jacked up. You know, it is like getting a permit or a tag to go hunt alligator in Alabama. It's like, Mr. High Priest, I'm going to need about 20,000 Christian tags. And is it legal to hunt them at night or do I have to hunt them during the day? It's just like the way that they had to get permits to go do it. And the Sanhedrin and the high priest were all too happy to give him letters to give him permits to go do it. Paul was sold out like he was all in to find every single man, woman, child, follower of the way and get rid of them. As a little bit of an aside, it is interesting, verse 3 says, any belonging to the way. That's what they were called, the way. They weren't called Christians. They were called the way. Well, why were they called the way? First and foremost, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So first of all, yes, that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Scripture also says that he is the way of salvation in Acts chapter 16. Talks about the way of the Lord in Acts 18. Says that he provides the way of peace in Luke chapter 1. In Second Peter chapter 2, that he is the way of truth. That he is the way of righteousness. So he is the way of salvation. He leads to the way of the Lord, the way of peace, the way of truth, the way of righteousness. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is a perfect, really, it's a perfect name for us. Jesus and his teachings were not were not, and are not pictured in Scripture as this new religion, not pictured as this set of principles, not pictured as a bunch of rules and a bunch of regulations. You can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't. No, that's not the way. Scripture pictures it. Scripture pictures the the, the walk of a a follower as a way and as a means of life. Christianity is the way. And, y'all, it is the only way. There are not 50 different ways to heaven. There's not 50 different ways to the Father. There's one way. There's one walk. And it is through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Period. Like period. It is an exclusive club. It's an exclusive club that everybody can get into. It's crazy. There's one way. There is another way that seems right to man, but Proverbs 16 tells us that's the way that leads to death. And so it's like Jesus says, walk this way. Just walk this way. He tells Matthew, follow me. He tells his guys, follow me. Just walk this way. And he says, it's a narrow gate. I know, I get it. It's a narrow gate. And not many people are going to walk through the narrow gate. A bunch of people are going to walk through the wide gate. The wide gate is the way that leads to death. The narrow gate is the way that leads to life. He says, come follow me. Come follow me. It's not a big complicated formula. Just follow me, he says. Well, the ones that just followed him are the people that Paul's trying to kill. The followers of the way Saul is sold out to killing him somehow Saul had heard that there's revival and awakening going on up up north of Jerusalem and he was hot mad about it so he gets his little permits and he gets his letters and he and his entourage head out towards Damascus again it's about 150 miles away and Scripture says they as they neared Damascus, so they had been traveling for a while. I don't know how long they've been traveling. Bible doesn't tell us. Probably a couple of weeks because it's 150 miles and they're walking. And we see Saul's conversion begin in verse 3 of Acts 9. And I want to give you a few steps that I kind of see in his conversion. You know, we see God's sovereign hand. We see his sovereignty so clearly we also see man's responsibility you know God's sovereignty does not rid us of our responsibility we see God's sovereignty and we see man's responsibility so the first thing that we see in this process with Paul is contact and if you got a worship guide and I hope you do it's the first fill in the blank in that worship guide verse three says now as he went on his way he saw went on his way he approached Damascus And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now bear in mind, where's Paul's mind right now? What's his mindset? His whole reason for existence is slaughter, chaos, and havoc. He's there to ravage the church. And God slams the brakes on. I mean slams the brakes on. Stops him dead in his tracks on that dusty road to Damascus. Now is that the way that that God always works? Like a sudden light, visible light from heaven that shines all around? I, don't, I mean, I don't think so. Um, he's God. He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants. Like, of course. But it wasn't that way for me when I got saved. I don't think it's like that for most people. However, and this is a, a pretty significant however, God always initiates the contact and salvation. I don't know if that's in your worship god or not. I can't can't remember if I put it in there. If not, write that down. God always initiates the contact in salvation. Probably not usually like this that we see in Acts 9. Pro- probably not. But he always initiates it. Well, why? Because on our own in our natural manness or womanness, we 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 can't do it. We can't We can't really know God. We can't really understand God. We're spiritually dead, Scripture says. So if I'm spiritually dead, I can't really know Him. I can't really see Him. I can't really understand Him because I'm spiritually dead. Something's got to happen to make me not spiritually dead. God has got to first invade the privacy of our sinful nature. He's got to jump into us and invade our life. He always does that. We saw it in Acts 8, in chapter 8 last week when Richard walked us through this deal with Philip. This Ethiopian guy is just riding along in his chariot, bebopping back to Ethiopia. Somehow or another, he's got a Bible with him. Somehow or another, he's got him in the right book, the book of Isaiah. doesn't tell us that he's in chapter 53, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him and I'm going to say, I bet you're reading chapter 53, weren't you Ethiopian dude? And he'll say, yeah. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But God's got him reading what God wants him to read, right? God plops Philip down there, has him running alongside of it. God uh, providentially crosses their paths. Well, what happens? Philip answers the questions. The guy's got questions. God puts a man there, Philip, to answer the questions. And then he leads him to Christ and he baptizes him. God did all of that. God had it all laid out. And if that's true in the case of the Ethiopian, it's true for me if you're a Christ follower, it's true for you. And I believe we're going to see pretty clearly it's true in the case of Saul. God is sovereign in salvation. God jumps into it. We see Paul write about it throughout the scriptures, but we see it 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes, the natural person, me and you left in our natural state before we're saved. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because the Bible says they're folly to Him. They're foolishness to us. And He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And if I'm spiritually dead, I can't spiritually discern anything. God's got to do something. Left to ourselves, we don't pursue God. We don't. We pursue health and wealth and happiness and, and, and good times. And But you know what we find at the end of the day? All those things are fleeting. All of them, in a second, they can be gone. I think about my own life. Y'all, my own Jesus story. I was just rolling through life, happy, pretty, healthy, had an incredibly good marriage, sweetest wife ever on the planet, good kids. Okay, okay kids. <laughs> but y'all, something something was messed up. Something wasn't quite right. I knew something what, and I couldn't put my finger on it. Something just wasn't quite right. And I have absolutely no doubt that in January of 2000, God just dropped the word truth into my head and into my heart. I don't know how, but I know it wasn't me. He just dropped that word truth. Somehow he let me know that he wanted me to know the truth. And I went on this insane, crazy journey, quest, search For truth, picked up a Bible for the very first time and dug in. I never would have picked. If God hadn't done that, I never would have picked a Bible up. Are you kidding me? He gave me the thirst for it. I didn't have the thirst on my own. He gave me the hunger for His Word. I wasn't hungry for His Word. If I was hungry for His Word in the first 37 years of my life, I would have picked it up and read it myself. He put that in me. It was Him. It was not me. And it wasn't 50-50. It was 100% him and it was 0% me. He led me. He guided me. He illuminated the text of the scripture. and And I began to understand it. Well, did I understand? Did I read it and understand all of that? Did he illuminate all that I understood? No. You know what he illuminated and what I understood? Enough to get saved. And the rest of life is a journey walking through and trying to figure it out but he allowed me to understand enough to get saved. He allowed that Ethiopian guy to understand enough with the help of Philip to get saved. Right? Does that make sense? He did it. He guided. He led. He invaded my comfortable little sinful world and led me to himself. He did it. And I don't know what your story is. I have no idea. But if you're a Jesus follower, you got a Jesus story. Did a light from heaven fall down and shine all around you? Pro- probably not. M- maybe so, but probably not. Were you laying in a gutter dead and God revived you? Like probably not, but but I don't know. But I don't. I want you to not sweat. Here comes a made-up word. Um, don't sweat the dramatic of your story. Somebody spell that puppy. Dramatic. I don't even know if I can say it twice. Dramaticityness. The drum. The drama of your story. Don't 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 sweat that. Because a heart change is a heart change. A heart change is a heart change. Just praise God that it happened if it happened. And you know the truth is I think very often. Very often, the greatest miracle that we see in, in salvation, it may be when God takes a person who is, quote, good or very good. Of course, Paul would say we're all wretched sinners. Nobody's good. I get that. But by our sort of standards, and our standards are messed up, I get it too. But to take somebody who by our standards is, is quote, good and allow that, quote, good person to come to a realization that they are a wretched sinner and in desperate need of salvation. I think sometimes that's the greatest miracle ever. And so we see here in Acts 9, Paul gets zapped. Verse 3, again, it says, Now as he went on his way, approached Damascus, a sudden light from heaven shone around him, and God said, Stop as far as you're going. Stops him dead in his tracks. Chapters 22 and 26 of Acts fill in some details. The whole gang, this whole entourage hit the ground, and we know that because verse 7 tells us that they stood. So if they stood, they must have been on the ground. They got back up. All but Saul, he's still on the ground, face-planted in the sand, in the dirt, on the ground. And through all of that, Saul sees Jesus Christ in his glory. Incredibly similar to the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Write that down, Matthew 17, go read it. Jesus reveals his glory to James and John and Peter on the mountain. This is so similar. I think Paul saw the same Jesus in that moment that that Peter and James and John did. And so he reveals himself to Saul, the hater, the persecutor. And you say, well, Luke doesn't tell us in Acts that he saw Jesus. And you are correct that Luke doesn't say in Acts that he saw Jesus. But, he, but it does say in several other places in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul had just listed a bunch of people that had seen the resurrected Christ, and he says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, that's Paul saying to himself, I'm untimely born, he also appeared to me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is defending his apostleship, and he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? We'll see this probably next week in in, in, uh, verse 17 of chapter 9. We hear from a guy named Ananias, and Ananias lays hands on Saul, and he says, Brother Saul, and it's crazy that he calls him brother. He calls this persecutor, this hater, this murderer, this Christian hunter, he calls him brother. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road By which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Y'all make no bones about it. It was Jesus Christ he met on the road. And I'm going to tell you this. If you're a Christ follower, you met Jesus Christ. You probably didn't meet him like that. I know I didn't. But I met him in the cab of my truck in the dark on January 17, 2001. Sure as the world. Did I physically see him? No. But we met. Make no bones about it, man. We met we met. Overwhelming grace. So Paul met Jesus on that road, there is no doubt. And it's also kind of nuts to think that the last person that saw Jesus that Scripture records was Stephen in chapter 7. Paul was there. Verse 55 of chapter 7 says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, he who he, Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God In Stephen's last words in verse 60. Unbelievable. They're pummeling him with rocks, killing him. Saul's standing there, rah, 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 kill him. And Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them as rocks are hitting him on the head. Can you imagine that Paul was there? And God answered that, what Stephen said, God answered that, and he was nothing but gracious to Saul. The heavens open up, and this killer from Tarsus named Saul gazes into the very face of the one who he's persecuting. Think about that. And you know what he finds in the face that he gazes into? Mind-blowing, amazing, transformational grace. It's unbelievable. So for Paul, for me, for you, for every single believer that has ever lived, salvation begins with God's sovereign contact. God invading our life somehow. He's the one that starts the snowball rolling. So we see it. We see this contact with, with Saul, and then we see conviction. We see conviction. Bible says, in falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So if salvation is going to happen, there has to be conviction of sin. There ain't no such thing as convictionless, repentantless salvation. It don't work that way, y'all. If it's going to happen, there has to be conviction of sin. By definition, if I'm not in need, what am I getting saved from? If I'm not drowning, I don't need the rescue buoy thingy thrown to me. Right? If I'm standing, how many times have you seen somebody standing in six inches of water and they throw a, somebody tell me what the thing's called, a lifesaver. Thank you. If I'm in six inches of water, I don't need it. But all of us are Drowning and we are all in need of rescue. And I believe on that road that that Saul's mind went back a year or two, some would say 3, that there was 1 to 3 years between Stephen stoning and Paul on that road. Don't think that that happened from one second to the next cuz it didn't. But I so I think that 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 Saul's on that road and I think his mind went right back To Stephen buried up to his waist getting pummeled with rocks as he's cheering him on. Kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. Stephen was the first, but I would imagine in that one, two, three year time span, Scripture doesn't record it, but I would imagine there were others. His conscience, I'm sure, is pretty heavy. Because you know, we have something inside of us. We know when something's wrong. We do. There's something in there that kind of tells us that little moral compass. There are There are absolute rights and absolute wrongs. So Paul's, I feel like, and I believe that his conscience was overwhelming him. Somehow the Lord let him know that, allowed him to understand that in persecuting the Lord's people, that he was persecuting him. Look guys, if you mess with me, you're messing with him. Pick a believer. You mess with the believer, you're messing with the Lord. So I think this is we see Paul, Saul, hit with the real issue. And I want you to hear this because this is the real issue. In every one of our lives, in every friend of yours life, in every relative of yours life, this is the issue. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? It's not deep theological truths. What do we do with Jesus? God doesn't say to Saul, Saul, you've been a naughty boy. You know, he doesn't say, you've hated my people. But Saul did. He doesn't say, Saul, you're going around kicking doors down. Well, he did, but that's not what the Lord says. All that superficial stuff, all that is, is just evidence of the condition of Saul's heart. But it's the, it's the outward stuff that is evidence of, of the condition of his heart. But what he says to him, y'all, is he says, Saul, here's your problem, bro. You're persecuting Jesus. You're persecuting me. That is your problem. And y'all, if you're watching or listening, if you die and you go to hell, it won't be because you lied. person sitting north, south, east, and west from you lied. I lied. I ain't going to hell. I lied. If you go to hell, if you die and you go to hell, it won't be because you stole something. The person sitting behind you to the side of you, in front of you, to the other side, they probably stole something too. I did. If you've been in jail, you ain't going to hell because you've been in jail. It's a story for another day, but 1984, I went to jail in Athens, Georgia. I didn't stay that long, but I went there. But I'm not going to hell for that, right? I'm not. If you you die and you go to hell, it won't be because you've been a drunk for 10 years or you've been a drug addict for 10 years. No, no, none of that is why you, if you die and you go to hell, it is because you did not accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, period. Big, huge, period, on the end of that. That's why. In other words you will have died lost that is the only reason all that other stuff is superficial should you go to jail probably not should you lie no should you steal no should you be a drunk for ten years no should you be doing drugs no but none of you die and go to hell because you died without Christ so when the Lord talks to Saul he's like Saul dude your problem is simple this is all of us man the problem is simple and for for Saul here is the conviction why are you persecuting me every single human that lives or has ever lived apart from Jesus is as guilty as Saul of rejecting him so we see this conviction with Paul laying flat on his face And then we see conversion. Verse 5 says, And he said, he, Saul, Who are you, Lord? And he calls him Lord. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So I believe that somewhere that Saul's conversion, Saul's justification, churchy theology word, Saul's moment in time where he went from lost to found. Saul's moment in time where he was made right before God. There is, if you're a believer, there is a moment in time where you went from lost to found, blind to sight. There's a moment in time where the righteousness of Christ just envelops you. And you may not be able to point to that exact moment in time. That doesn't mean there was not a moment in time, because there was. And so I believe, for Saul, it was somewhere in the white spaces of verse 5. That's the name of the message today, in the white spaces. Somewhere in the white spaces of verse 5, Paul went from lost to found. Up to that point, he's rebelling against every single thing that God is doing. And how for three, four years? Well, how is that really working out? Is he hurting God? If you get mad at God, is God up there like you've hurt him? You gave him a black eye or something. Well, no, what is is happening here with Saul and his persecution of the church? He started, since he started this little campaign of terror, the gospel is spreading like mad. It's moved out of Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria and all the way up into Syria and Damascus. Apparently, because that's where he's going, right? So he asked, who are you, Lord? And at least he's kind of got the right, because he calls him Lord, he's kind of got the right idea of, in terms of where he belongs in the relationship, flat on his face on, on the ground. And I believe that's when he got called out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When that happened, he knew that was God. He, he knew it was God, but I doubt he, whether he understood that it was Jesus. But when Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, a bajillion light bulbs went off, I promise you. You ever had a light bulb moment where you went from, you had no earthly idea what's going on, something happened, something was said, you saw something, and bam, the light bulbs went off. In my truck at 5.30 in the morning on January 17th, the light bulbs went off. Like from one second to the next, oh my gosh, I believe every word of scripture. Just like that. Back up 2,000 years. Raise your hand if you've had a light bulb moment. It just happens, y'all. You go from total lack of understanding of something to all of a sudden you you get enough, right? You back up. Jesus is on the cross, a couple thousand years from us, but probably six, seven years from this time. Jesus is on the cross. At the at the end, he says, "Ila ila lamak sabachthani in Hebrew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the very end of his, of his physical life on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he dying on those on the cross and he's got the two guys hanging next to him? Are they alone? Say yes or no. No, there's bunches of people, right? There's a bunch, mostly all Jews hanging around there. Much of Jewish leadership They knew the Scripture. All those people knew the Scripture. They knew it from great-granddaddy to granddaddy to daddy to me. Knew the Scripture. And of all all Scripture, we knew King David's writings, right? King David, the greatest king that ever lived in their world. They knew David's writings. When did David write? A long time before Jesus is hanging on the cross, about a thousand years or so. Psalm 22. They knew. It's a Psalm of David. They knew Psalm 22. So picture it now. They're all out here. Skies doing crazy stuff. Jesus says, ele, ele, lamak sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I promise you, tons of them, their eyes got like that. Do I look stupid now? They're like, oh my gosh. Psalm 22. It's a messianic Psalm. It's a description of the cross. It's a description of, of the messiah i want to read you some of what psalm 22 says and then i want to read you verse 1 of psalm 22 here a thousand years now before before this event on the cross here's what david wrote and it's describing the messiah he says i am scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who seek me mock me it's verse 7 they make mouths at me they wag their heads the wagging of the heads in that culture was the way that you, you lashed out in scorn. It was called wagging their heads. Verse 7. Verse 8 is in quotes. So somebody else is saying this. David's recording it. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And verse 14 says, I am poured out. The Messiah is saying this. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up. My tongue is sticking to my jaws because my mouth is so dry. And you lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16 says, a company of evildoers encircles me. It goes on and says, they have pierced my hands and feet. It's a description of a crucifixion which was not even a thing when David wrote it. It was not a, a means of capital punishment then. David probably had absolutely no earthly idea what he's writing. He just described the cross. He just described those events. And verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those people at the foot of that cross, light bulbs are flying everywhere. It's one of those moments. This was the moment for Saul on that Damascus road. He believed that person to be dead. He believed that person to be dead and rotting in a grave somewhere, and yet that person was standing next to him alive and in glorious light. There he was. And make no bones about this Saul knew the gospel, he knew the message. He debated the message with Stephen. He probably debated the message with a whole bunch of folks. He'd spent many hours dragging them off. I promise you that they told him the message. Paul studied under the the, the wisest rabbi in Israel, Gamaliel. Paul was a smart dude. Paul knew the gospel. It stopped right there though he knew it he tracked enough of them and arrested enough of them and drug enough off to have completely heard the message but I think when he heard Jesus' voice standing next to him and saw him and Jesus said I am Jesus whom you had persecuted he surrendered his life to him right then he submitted everything that he was to the God that was standing next to him in glory, he's face down, face planted in the dirt. He was shattered and broken. And yet underneath all, he was, he was underneath the, the mercy of a loving, gracious, just, and merciful God. At that point, he was broken in repentance and healed by faith. Faith, faith in the dead man that was standing alive next to him. He is broken in remorse and repentance and all these things are flooding his mind. He's probably tracking his whole life, flashing in in images across his mind. And then he is overwhelmed with grace. It's amazing. Y'all, it's just amazing. Those few verses outside of the, the, the death, the birth really, the birth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord... We see one of the most monumental events in all of human history. Somewhere in the white spaces around verse 5. An incredibly unlikely massive transformation in a man's life. 20, 25 years later he would urge the readers of Romans and me and you 2,000 years later to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Listen to what Paul wrote 30 years later to Timothy. 30 years later after he meets Christ on that road. Timothy. He calls Timothy his spiritual son. Timothy, who Paul knew would continue on his work for the sake of Christ. He wrote this at the beginning of 1 Timothy. It starts in verse 12. He says, "I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, he's the one who gives me strength. He's the one that I'm thanking." Why? Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. I was a hater, a hunter, and a killer. But he judged me faithful. He says, but I received mercy. Verse 13, he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace overflowed. He says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Well, what saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You know how many times Paul says, put me in the front of the line. I'm the chief sinner. I am the foremost. There's absolutely no reason that I should be saved. Wake up every day of my life, can't even believe it. Saul said that. Y'all, I say it every day to myself. I wake up blown away. The grace is overwhelming. I believe Paul lived the rest of his life overwhelmed that he was saved. Overwhelmed with the grace that he gets because it makes no sense. Logic would say God should have smotened him. He should have killed him. Stephen's getting killed. God should have thumped Paul off the planet and killed him. But that's not what he does, y'all. He has grace. Even though we're an opponent. Even though we're a hater. He has grace. It's overwhelming grace. So today we walk through Paul's Jesus story. And God jumps in his path and God convicts him and God saves him. It is incredible evidence that God can take the meanest of the mean, the the sorriest of the sorries, the dirtiest of the dirty, and make them clean. That's the business that God is in. He's been in that business for a long time. He was in that business back then with Saul, and he is in that business today. So when you say, I'm not worthy, God can clean you up. I think sometimes we can, y'all listen to this, I think sometimes we can go down the road of wondering whether there just may be cases where God's grace is insufficient. Where there just may be people who are outside of the guardrails of God's grace. We go down the road and we think, "Eh, I don't know about that guy. He, He may just be too far gone. He may be too dirty, and a lot of times the guy that we're talking about's the one in the mirror. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know that he can. I know. I know that he can save that Zach Morris dude, but you just don't know what I've done. Like you just you don't know. Like I'm, I'm just. When I get cleaned up, I'll come to church. Oh my Lord, how many times have I heard that? Yeah, you want to visit church? Well, I got some stuff to handle before I do that. No, no, no. This is a hospital for the sick, not the well. If you're well and perfect, go somewhere else. Like, like God has been in the business of clean cleaning up things, changing lives, fixing broken stuff and people for a long, long, long time. The truth is, I think it's in those people that we think that are somehow outside of the guardrails of his grace y'all that's when his work is the most miraculous and it is the most that's the spot where his grace does the greatest and most glorious work those are the testimonies that just lead throngs of people to Christ and in Acts and in other places throughout scripture Paul tells his Jesus story or pieces of his story over and over and over and it always is based on the dead guy that's not dead he's alive always it's always about the risen Christ y'all we can argue over so many different theological things don't let the devil take you down that road did Jesus walk out of a grave alive or not what are you gonna do with Jesus that's the question he walks out of a grave alive that changes everything that's where the focus is the focus is on is on him that was it for Paul. The dead guy is walking. So it focused on that, and it always, man, it always, always was all about this overwhelming grace. This grace that is not deserved. If you showed up here today, or if you're watching somehow online, and you have bought the lie because it is a lie straight from hell that you are too dirty that you are too bad, that you have done too many things, in your you don't know my past. If you bought that lie, let his mercy and his grace wash you clean, and let his justness wash you clean. If your parents, or your teachers, or your coaches, or your grandmama, or your kids, or your cousins, or the people that you work with, if they've told you for years and years and years, you're unworthy, Let the blood of Christ wash you clean. He's a promise keeper, y'all. He will never tell you a story. And His word says no one is outside of the guardrails of His grace. So as we sing, y'all, this next song, as we worship the Lord in this next song, I want to invite you to the cross. I want to invite you. You can stay seated. You can can stand up, whatever it is. But I want us to, I want us all just to kind of look inside. I want us, I just want us to reflect back. And if you really have bought this lie that you're too far gone, I want you to really sit there, pray, and, and, and I believe that the Lord will make you understand that there's no such thing. Maybe the Lord is convicting you today about somebody that you felt, not yourself, that you felt was too far gone. If that's the case, come up to this cross and leave that here. And then reach out to that person. Give them a hug. Give them a phone call. Take them to lunch. Take them to breakfast. Share. If you're a Christian, share your story with them. That story's not just for you. Matter of fact, it's really not for you at all. It's for for the other person. As we sit here today, maybe it is you that you've bought the lie that you're outside the guard Maybe the Lord is leading you with Paul as as your inspiration to share your story with somebody. I don't know who. Listen to what the Lord is telling you. And I'm not saying he's going to audibly speak in your ears. He can do whatever he wants. But I can tell you this, he dropped the word truth into my. mouth zero doubt zero doubt just pray that he would allow you the understanding and if you've never said yes we we just talked about a few different responses to the gospel but if one of them, if you're not a believer if you're not a Christ follower, if you've not said yes to that offer, consider doing that today, consider allowing him to make you clean and that has got to begin with conviction. Repentance, which is this churchy word too, y'all. But all that is is a turning away from sin. And, and, I, and I ask you to turn best as you can. Turn away from the sin and turn towards Him. It's not just turning away from the sin. You can go to AA and get clean off of alcohol and just turn away from the alcohol. In your own strength, you could, you could do that. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning away from the sin and turning towards Him. Turning away from the sin and being sold out for Him. Letting him lead and guide your life. So it's that and believing that he died on the cross to save you, period. If that's you today, I want you to think about it. I'm going to pray if y'all would close your eyes. If that's you today, and I would invite again anybody down to the cross. And y'all look, get the elephant in the room. It's not just people coming down to the cross to be saved. So if you come down to the cross, everybody's not going to say, ooh, they must not be a believer, but maybe they're getting saved. No. You may have something you need to leave here. You may need to come down here and pray for your neighbor, for your son or daughter or your mama or your father. So I invite you to the cross. Again, you can stay seated as we worship here in a minute, or you can stand up. But here's the deal. Lord, Let today be the day that I turn from my ways and turn to your ways. Lord, today's the day that I believe that you did die on that cross and that that was for me and it was for my sin. Lord, save me, rescue me, redeem me, reconcile me, make me right with you. In Jesus' name, amen. tell you all one more quick thing and I'll turn it back over to the worship team. After church, me and my wife are gonna me and Susan are gonna be right out there where those couches are. If we have if me and you have never spoken, if, if I don't know you, you don't know me, I would love to get to know you. We're gonna do that every Sunday. I would love to just hang out, speak with you, pray with you, whatever it is that you want. So we'll be out there right after church.